0: Welcome to the Beyond High Performance podcast featuring content and conversations from me, Jason Jaggard, along with our elite coaches at Novus Global, their high-performing clients, and the faculty at the Meta Performance Institute for Coaching. On this podcast, you'll hear some of the world's best executive coaches and high-performing leaders, artists, and athletes discuss how they continue to go beyond high performance in their lives and businesses.
1: You hire people who are really good. Like The notion of being threatened by somebody that's smarter than you is a destructive thing. You actually want people who are smarter. You want people who can do things you can't do, and if you don't think it it is threatening, you actually end up with people who do things you can't do.
0: Hey, everybody. I'm Jason Jaggard, and we are here in the bustling heart of San Francisco with a very special interview with the one and only Ed Catmull. Ed is the New York Times bestselling author of Creativity, Inc., available wherever books are sold. He's also the co-founder of Pixar Animation and was the president of Pixar Animation and Disney Animation for over 10 years. We're going to have a wide-ranging conversation talking about his early life, getting into animation, leading some of the most creative people on the planet, and of course, leadership tips he's learned from working with Steve Jobs. I think you're going to really enjoy it. And without further ado, please welcome Ed Catmull. We have some exciting news to share with you. But first, have you ever wondered what tools and techniques our coaches use to do what they do at Novus Global? Or maybe you've just wanted a one-stop resource for coaching that you can use with yourself and those you lead. Well, for the past several years, we've been working on a book that shows you how to do just that. It's 250 pages where we pull back the curtain to show you our method for helping leaders go beyond high performance. We packed this thing as full as we could with great tips content and stories from our clients and coaches on how they apply the tools we use every day in work and leadership. And while our book won't be out until this summer, we wanted to give you an opportunity to begin engaging with the material right now. To do that, go to novus.global backslash book where you can sign up to be a part of the Beyond High Performance Network, where we'll be handing out advanced copies and chapters from the book, doing free interactive webinars with our top clients and coaches and other free resources and surprises that I think you are going to love. So if you don't want to wait until the summer to get access to the book. If you're longing to be part of a network of leaders that all want to go beyond high performance, or if you simply want more free resources from our world to help you and your team, then head over to novus.global backslash book and sign up today. Ed, thank you for being here. Thanks for spending time with me today.
1: My pleasure to be here.
0: I heard that two of your heroes when you were young were Walt Disney and Albert Einstein. That's right. Yeah. And what about them did you love and what have you learned from them and admiring them since you were a kid? Well, I grew up in
1: the 50s. And of course, uh, Einstein was an iconic figure. You know, I liked sciences and math when I was a kid. And the uh, the fact that he had changed people's concept of space and time was like really cool. <laughs> so
0: yeah. I still find it cool. Yeah. So then, so, so Albert makes sense. Where was the connection with Walt? I did a lot of drawing okay like as a kid or even as while you were in school
1: or i was growing up all through in high school i was the best artist in the school okay I, I knew i was the best but they put me forward as the person for the high school to get this state award for a scholarship mm-hmm. for art which i turned down because at this point i thought i don't think i've got the thing that actually takes me to where i need to be with it i couldn't see the path for how i got better but there was no school for animators. Hmm. Walt trained his own people. Yeah. All right. The, the CalArts program didn't happen until years later. Yeah. ARPA, which today is called DARPA, but ARPA was funding various programs. And so they were funding the development of computer graphics, believing it was going to become important hmm. in the future. And their job was to fund the development of computers that they thought were going to be important. And this was the focus at Utah. Which just happened to be where I grew up, went to school, and then returned to graduate school. There were two people there. One of them was actually a graduate student who was very inspirational, and name was Alan Kay, and the other was Ivan Sutherland, Mm -hmm. who is the one that built the first A V and AR systems. Huh. Okay. Yeah. So it's like fifty four years ago.
0: Yeah. And this is in college. You're in college? You getting your PhD or
1: I was uh, I was a student there, but he had already done this. Hmm. And then he came to be a professor and and with uh, uh, Dave Evans formed this program in computer science. And Dave and Ivan believed in having this, having this very open environment. Hmm. Within this context of solving these big problems, they then set it up so that each student was trying to advance the state of the art. Hmm. Because originally they were polygons, how do you determine what's visible, what's not visible? One of the people who made the steps was John Warnock, who later founded Adobe Systems. Huh. And you were all together in the same environment? Yeah, we're all together. That's great. Okay, so it was like each person was supposed to add to that. Uh-huh. And when I was there, because I made this film with my hand. Yes. So that was a class project. So like, this was a great thing, and but there was no system for for you know, animating hands. And so it was like this typical manual task to get the data in there, put it together, write a program t- to animate it and then uh, make the, the, pro- the film and published it. And then another person in that class did something which was regarding the animation of the face of his wife. Hmm. So we were essentially each trying to advance the thing and then so was it dissertation topic, I said, well, why don't you look at solving the problem of the polygonal edges? Mm. So then I was trying to think about the polygonal edges, and uh, I realized ultimately it was a flawed approach. So I came up with a way of taking the the, the curved patches, which was being developed in, mathematically, it's like you can have individual patches and then you stitch them together, mm. but there was no polygonal outline. But there was no way of displaying them
0: because the memories were tiny. As in the computational power was tiny or the ability to contain? Both. Yeah. And part of that thinking
1: was from this other student I mentioned, Alan Kay. Mm-hmm. And incidentally, Alan Kay was one of the influential things behind basically Smalltalk and and at Xerox PARC as they hmm. built up the first personal workstation. Yeah. As we were making the incremental advancements in computer graphics, we reached a point, this is when we were at Lucasfilm, because we were trying to come up with techniques for creating uh, images for they could be useful in movies, then we just did a, in this case it was a calculation, how much complexity would we need to be able to match the complex of the real world, uh, visually.
0: Right. And just to slow that down because if you have infinite amount of data points on a smooth surface, because there are probably an infinite amount of data points, that's way too much data for a computer to render or to make that, because the computational power wasn't there. Is that right?
1: Right. These are unknown problems. We don't have solutions for them. So yeah, we'll build something, and did, to handle massive numbers of, of polygons, but a lot of the effort was in solving the other problems. Mm. It also meant, and we we were really good, I think, at understanding this, it was right away that the problem was big enough that the real issue was how we participate in a bigger community. Hmm. And the computer graphics world is called Siggraph. Okay. So that's the name of the community. The community. Mm-hmm. All right. And so they there's still a vital live community. Hmm that has evolved over time, but is solving all these problems. So we never looked at what we were doing as some sort of secret, because we had more, as a single place, Lucas had more money invested in developing this than anybody else. But we published everything. Hmm. And the reason we published was we had no illusions. Somebody was gonna discover these things anyway. Hmm. So why keep them a secret? The real question is, How do you get the best people? So that means one, you, you publish because you're open and people actually prefer to be in an open environment. And the second one is that a lot of people are working on the problems and you're just better off if you are working with them, friends with them. Hmm. Um, they, a lot of them are at universities. So these, these are good friends, lifelong friends. Yeah. They're developing students and they're solving problems and It's like it's this whole community now is is moving things forward which is much more than we could do
0: well i think in a large part that's your story it's bringing together art and science it's uh bringing together walt and albert and another person of course who did that really well is steve jobs and you worked with steve for almost 45 years
1: yeah i i i worked for steve longer than anybody else
0: yeah that sounds right and I've appreciated what you've said about him in terms of essentially what you say is most people get Steve wrong and that their impression of him in like the popular zeitgeist is a certain way, but that you experienced him differently. I would love for you to talk a little bit about how you saw him and how it's different than how everyone talks about him.
1: Yes, the, the, the thing about which I realized uh, fairly early on was that there was always a little bit of sort of luck with things, but the other was um, that I had done something so that when that lucky thing happened, then we would establish something. So I'm with George Lucas and Mm -hmm. likewise with Steve. And so there was luck in running into him at a SIGGRAPH conference in San Francisco, which led ultimately to him buying Pixar. Yeah.
0: By the way, with that, you actually turned Steve down the first time he tried to buy it, which I think is impressive because not a lot of people turn Steve Jobs down. One is, I think, I think it's because he wanted to, he wanted to buy it as a tech company, not as a future animation company. Is that right?
1: Th- that's right. I I first met him because Alan Kay, uh-huh. uh, at that point, was uh, I like guess you know senior fellow at Apple, so he was there for a while, and he introduced Steve to us, because at this point we were starting this process of going out, and then Steve disappeared from the radar. Mm-hmm. We didn't know why. Of course, later learned it was because him being basically removed at Apple. Yeah. Then he wanted to to acquire us as it was opened up, and so we met with him. Yep. And, and it was apparent, and I was with my uh, good friend Alvey Ray Smith at the time while we were trying to figure this this out. But he really wanted to form something, and there were two issues. One is we didn't want to be a computer company, right? It's not who we were. Yeah. And the other was, it's like, there's a little bit of a rebound effect there, because he just been through something pretty traumatic. Yeah. So it, it's one thing to have this drama within the company, but um, it's like it was very public in Steve's case. Yeah. So, um, so basically, we declined yeah. in a polite way. Sure. Uh, and then he went and formed Next Computer, and, uh, uh, and then we ran into him. And since he now had the computer that he wanted to have, he was still interested in us. And it, it a great deal of that was because Steve got the fact that computer graphics was going to become very important in the future. Mm. So here was the strongest group, single group, working in computer graphics around. At the Vanguard. Yeah, and he liked the way we thought and though we thought about the future and so forth. So, so he invested in us. But we were producing hardware. So we were now making this specialized uh, high-end computer that could handle film resolution. And that's RenderMan? No, that was called the Pixar Image Computer. Okay. And there were two markets to begin with. One of them was medical imaging because we could take these high-resolution X-rays and CT scans um, and do sophisticated image processing on them as well as to create volumetric views of things. So this is brand new. Like we had a patent on this. This was like, <laughs> and this started a whole new way of looking at things. Hmm. And that was developed at, the this, this software was done at Lucasfilm when we did it. It was also acquired by uh, people doing satellite image processing. So it was just like, this is a different world for us. Yeah. And none of us knew anything about marketing, manufacturing, sales. Yeah. And Steve's experience was actually with the marketing selling of low-end, consumer-grade products. So he didn't really
0: know. How to sell super, super, super expensive computers. Right. So basically, none of us knew what we were doing. (laughs) Uh And this is years before any animation or any storytelling or. That's right. Because we worked, we we did know
1: that the amount of processing power available was not there yet. (laughs) So that was still the goal. We still had it. We knew what the timeline was. Yeah. But well, we knew we weren't ready yet. And I think that I actually felt pride in the fact that we were very clear-eyed yes. about the rate at which things were happening. So when I left college, I thought it's going to take 20 years, excuse me, 10 years. I thought it was going to take 10 years. But I was fairly quickly disabused of that, that it was going to take longer, but I didn't actually come up with a new time frame. I said, okay, well, that's kind of silly to say, oh, well, this is what's going to happen. Yeah. I didn't know. Yeah. But I did know that Moore's law, which is this, you know, the, the rate of increase of compute power was going to hold in the foreseeable future. So among all the things that grow exponentially or grow quickly, this was actually a rarity in that it was a consistent growth rate, says so compound growth rate of 40% improvement in processing speed year after year. Which makes it
0: relatively easier to predict. Yeah. And the skate where the puck's going.
1: Yes, that's right. So that was, it was one of those things I could build around. And as I say, that's actually pretty rare in most industries. Yeah. Because you've got, you may have explosive growth. You don't know how long it's going to last or if that rate's going to be consistent or if it's going to go up and down. Hmm. But in this case, so, okay, well, we kind of know what that is. So that actually helped us from becoming deluded hmm. about what we needed to do and where we need to put our energy. So now we're, we're selling this hardware, but it's also this intense learning experience because we have to learn about
0: sales and marketing and having customers uh, and manufacturing. And the stakes are high because you have to turn a profit or are you hemorrhaging money? Is Steve putting more and more money into this?
1: Oh yeah. So Steve bought us for, he put 5 million in the company originally, but he bought the company for 5 million. Uh Uh-huh. So he was out ten million, and I never knew what the real numbers were. Um, I heard other people saying it was even some books about him that he was worth that time he was worth a hundred billion dollars. Huh. I would have thought at the time that he was worth two hundred. Yeah, more. Yeah, but I'm guessing. Yeah, right. By the time he started hemorrhaging money,
0: he put in fifty four million dollars into Pixar. Into Pixar. Wow. When you don't really have, a, you're not telling stories. You're not making movies. This is all just investing in the tech. the anticipation of Moore's law catching up to be able to tell a story yes that's right (laughs)
1: that's great okay so it was frustrating it was hard yeah for him and i was very aware that there was no vc ever that would have uh, done what he did invested in that why do you think he did that the truth was, most of the time i kind of wondered why he stuck with it as long as he did yeah i did learn something and I think it was related to the Apple thing because he basically was instrumental in building it, and then he felt like he'd been betrayed. And when we started the Pixar, when he, the day that we signed the documents, he put his arms around Albie and me, and he said, whatever happens, we have to be loyal to each other. Hmm. So that was his statement. Yeah. Now, he was. Hmm. Now, they still made it very hard for him yes and whether it was 100 200 which i don't know if i like it was still
0: 54 is still a big percentage of 200 that was, like
1: that was a crazy amount of his to be to he had his to be, capital to, be, to bet yeah and he looked at selling us three times hmm. at each time there was the same process that is somebody was interested steve would then ask for a price that was uh, outrageous, they would come in with something which was really too low. And then logically you would say, oh, they're going to meet in the middle. But Steve wouldn't budge off his number. So it was like, okay, the first time this happened, I thought, well, that's a little strange. So they we're back doing things again. And then we go through the process again with another company. And one of the things along the way was actually Microsoft, who wanted to buy us because its graphics talent. Yeah. And so they came up with a number and Steve came with a number and they weren't that far apart that it was rational thinking they would end up in the middle. Steve wouldn't
0: budge.
1: (laughs) And then at that point I realized, oh, he's actually not trying to sell us. He's trying to value us. Hmm. He's trying to validate his investment. Hmm. If they're willing to pay this amount of money for us, I will keep going. Hmm. Smart. The other thing that was happening as we're going through this, I have to say that that Steve's sense of humor was changing and improving. And now in retrospect, I realize, okay, it really was a fairly big effect of have gone through that failure. And everybody on the outside would say it's a failure and that, that he didn't do things the way that he should. Yeah, And that's one of the, the reasons that the story gets skewed about Steve is that that behavior that he had is dramatic. Hmm. And so people like the, the dramatic stories, all right. So that's more exciting to write about in our articles and, and tell stories about, cause it's got that kind of drama to it. Right. But it actually missed the real story, which is the hero's journey. The Steve's behavior early on and in the extremity of it didn't work. And Steve is extraordinarily smart. And part of being smart was knowing and, and deeply getting that there's no upside in being wrong. Hmm. The other thing that he had, which is hard for people to understand, is that you commit with passion when you need to commit, like you're going to do this. And then when it's wrong, then you abandon it. You move to something else, but you need that passion as the driving force. But you don't want that passion to drive you the wrong direction. How do you do that? Yeah. And in in Steve's case, what he would do is he wanted to have people around him who would push back. So, as a an example, with we have the board of directors of, of Pixar because we were a public company for a while. Hmm. And we had these meetings of the board of directors, but there were two people who didn't push back. Steve took them off the board. Hmm. He only wanted people on the board who would disagree with him because they were of no value if they agreed
0: with Hmm. him. I heard you once say that you had a strategy around how to push back with Steve. What was the probability of Steve liking an idea the first time when you would pitch him on an idea or a solution or something you are trying to solve at Pixar?
1: Well, it was... The the I, mean, I can't answer that particular question, uh, but it's more like there were times that I would think we should do something, and mm-hmm. I was pretty certain I was right, mm-hmm. and Steve would disagree. And the one thing I did know was that Steve could think and talk faster than I could. <laughs> and I also knew that it was a bad idea to try to direct Steve into how we should think, hmm. right? Because he's too smart to be gamed. Hmm. You just And I watched people try to game him, that never works. Okay. All right. Yeah. I wasn't articulate enough to like push back in the moment, and and Steve understood that. I think mean, it's the thing that worked with our relationship
0: because I never had an argument with Steve, hmm. but I did disagree. In forty five years, you never had an argument with Steve. No, that's incredible. So yeah, so sorry. So you you did disagree with him.
1: Yeah, so, but uh, but the style was which he would accept because I wasn't gaming him was that I would say, okay, let I'll come back to you later on it. So I might be a week later and I would come back and say, here's the thing I'm trying to say, you shoot it down. Okay. Let's, you know, let's let's defer on this. So basically I'm thinking for a week to come up with the next sentence. (laughs) (laughs) So this would go on for a while. And then there'd be one of three outcomes. One of them is because we're progressing because I'm it's like, I I know this is the right thing. So I get to a, uh, the point where he would say, oh, I get it. You're right. End of discussion. We just move on. That happened maybe a third of the time. The other third of the time is, is, is I realized, oh, actually he is right. And then I would, I would just change yeah. because he was right. yeah. And the other third of the time was, it was not determined. And then I just did what I wanted to do. But Steve didn't care because we had discussed it, albeit a flow discussion. We had talked about it and that's what he wanted. And I wasn't gaming him. I was really just laying out the argument and it wasn't... A lot of these things are the kind of thing where you actually can reach a conclusion quickly. It's like, you just go do it. Yeah, we'll see. So that was, you know, the, the way of working. And so that was actually something he would get with him over an entire time. It's like, he would call me up before screenings, for instance, when he's gonna see them, and uh, he just say, how are things going? Usually he calls in the morning, I'm exercising in the gym. Hmm. But if there was a problem, the only thing I would say is, oh, we do have a problem with the film. But I wouldn't tell him what the solution is or, or how we should think about it. I would just say, we had a problem. And then, so he now knows that he's
0: looking for something. Hmm. And, and I'm not telling him how to think. So all you'd say is, there's a problem with the film. That's it, you're not gonna tell him what the problem is or any solutions, you're right. just seeding it. Yes. Have you heard the exciting news? Pre-orders are live for our book, Beyond High Performance, What Great Coaches Know About How the Best Get Better. This book is 250 pages of expertise from our Novus Global coaches and their clients who eagerly share how they apply their leadership tools in work and life. To make a sweet deal even sweeter, pre-ordering today unlocks bonuses, including access to the Beyond High Performance Network, enrollment in a leadership masterclass, early access to the book And a free copy of our companion workbook. To learn more and pre order now, visit novus.global forward slash book.
1: One of the reasons why Steve liked the directors of the films is because, as a good director who's got something they want to say, is committed to a path. And then at some point, the people around them, you know, their friends or people in the brand trust, other directors, after pushing for it and trying to solve it, we'll get to the point where they realize it's not working. So they then abandon it. And Steve really gets that, is you commit. 100%. So 100%. Yeah. And the difficulty is that when you're committed 100%, if you're very articulate, like Steve is, it's just really intimidating. So I, like how do you push back against somebody who's got that kind of personal aura and power in the room? Yeah. And yet he wants to push back. Yeah. The truth is his relationship with Pixar was different than it was with Disney. And I knew this all along, even when he was at Next, that Apple was somehow deeply embedded in his DNA and the way he thought about those things. Like that was really important to him. And at Pixar, it like, in terms of the technology, how he did things, he completely deferred to what I wanted to do when it came to storytelling. He deferred to John. Hmm. It's like, you know, he, you know, offer things up and so forth, but he just he wasn't trying to do things our way or telling us how to think leading up to it because we were initially making commercials and it was part of a logic which was okay we're building our muscle to deal with the the issues that come around production and Mm -hmm. we were naive with it. so we've been making short films but if you actually deal with commercials then you've got clients and customers and and deadlines so we're actually building up our strength there So that meant we would hire some more people. And the first person that John hired on this side was, was Andrew Stanton. And the, the thing that I talked about with, you know, everybody there and John got it was that you hire people who are really good. Like you like the notion of being threatened by somebody that's smarter than you is like, is a destructive thing. You actually want people who are smarter. Yeah. And sometimes that term is abused. It's like they're also going to do. But but it's, I think it's like you want people who can do things you can't do. And if you don't think it was threatening, you actually end up with people who do things
0: you can't do. Well, actually, with, with Andrew, what did he add specifically that was maybe absent from the trust or from the team?
1: Well, because he was the first person there, he was like he was making his commercials too, mm-hmm. right? So he was helping direct. Okay, yeah. He's an animator. Yeah. The second person was... Pete Doctor, mm-hmm. who's an animator. So, and in fact, to some extent it was, we drew the wrong conclusions from this because our first group of people were animators with the exception of Lee Unkrich, who was a, been trained as a film editor. And so I thought, well, that's where the the directors come from. So that was our conclusion. It was not the correct conclusion. Huh.
0: But, so, yes, yeah, so if you want to hire great, great directors, you look at the animators.
1: Right. So, but the thing was, is that we we moved to making this film. This group wanted to do it, and they'd bonded together. They had another friend who used to be at at, uh, Disney in the story. His name is Joe Rampt. Uh, he's unfortunately passed away in an accident. Mm-hmm. He had this oddball sense of humor. We went through a couple of editors before John found somebody who uh, he really clicked with. And it was actually this extraordinary editor who then became an extraordinary director. Who hmm. so did Toy Story 3 and he did Coco. Okay. This is this team that came together and, and everybody around them, the animators, and they'd bonded because we'd grown doing these commercials and then brought in people over time. And then as a company, we've been through some rough times. We Pixar as a hardware selling company did not succeed. Yeah. Right. So yeah. But we failed, but, but it had this great outcome that came of it because of our technology. Same was true with Next. Next didn't really succeed as a company, but they actually no. developed the foundations of their operating system for yeah. forward.
0: Yeah, for the Apple. For, yeah, the... for the
1: Apple and iOS. And, and it was the developments built upon Berkeley Unix. Like there's, all this is long history. Everybody knows that, but, but the real issue is the team has been through some hard times together and they stayed together. Yeah. So now they knew they had their backs. they are taking on a really hard task, which is when he finally got the chance to make the movie. Toy Story. Yes, Toy Story. Mm-hmm. So now they're making the movie. We're learning none of us had made a movie before. We have to bring in people. We actually didn't have any production people who'd actually manage something like this. Yeah. So we had our people out of the gig, gig economy of LA yeah. to come in to be the production people. We already had a culture of the artists and the technical people were colleagues. And, and we'd worked really hard to keep out a first class, second class
0: notion. Mm-hmm.
1: These are, everybody is completely respecting each other. Yeah. And we succeeded. I still I think we still are are there with various crews. Uh, but as we got close, then everybody realized, in fact, this is going to be a big deal. Hmm. When we started, Disney thought it was going to be a boutique film. Yeah, a little aside. Yeah, it was like, um, like Brave Little Toaster or something. Uh, no, more like, um, Nightmare Before Christmas. Okay, yeah. Okay, Made in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. It was a, a sort of a, a, in a niche area. It was successful. It didn't cost them a lot of money, and they liked the model. They were making a lot of money off of animation. Mm-hmm. They saw that we were doing these really good things in terms of the commercials and the short films. Yeah. And they thought, oh, we we could fund this and we'd have another boutique film. And they used that term. Hmm. Boutique Phil. So on the marketing side, as they got closer, they realized, oh, this is the big deal. So the marketing from Disney actually put together a great campaign. Hmm. So when it came out, this is a a big deal. And, uh, at this point, before the film came out, we started the thinking about the following film, which is Bug's Life. So. That group of people that had formed this friendship with each other had this dinner one time together uh, there in Point Richmond, and they came up with the idea for three different films. One of them was The Bugs Live. Uh, the other one ultimately led to *Wally*, and one of them led to... funny uh, Nemo? Uh, no, that was something different. I'm actually forgetting the third one was, but three of them came out of that a rather famous dinner in Pixar history, which most people don't know about now. But it was actually this pretty remarkable. Yeah. So this is a group that had bonded together, and it was three years for us to do Bugs Life. So that meant we had to make things successful because the the economic terms for Toy Story weren't that great. Yeah. They started to work on that. But we also realized that we were getting important pushback from Disney. That this was a group that did value pushback. The Brain Trust. Well, they weren't called the Brain Trust. Yeah. Then.
0: Well, did they have a name or where, where does there that was, come from? There was
1: no name. Okay. But where the name came from was that in the process of getting forward, we were starting to get better at what we were doing. And at that time, Disney Animation was actually not doing as well. And, uh, there was one person who provided a great deal of feedback and pushback on us, who was Tom Schumacher, who was the president of Disney animation. It's like his notes were great and he pushed back, but we realized at some point that's not going to be effective. And Andrew and I didn't talk about it at the time, but Andrew saw the same thing. So he was the one that thought, well, we should come up with a group, provide pushback on each other. So he came up with the term brain trust.
0: I've heard you say before that like psychological safety, people feeling safe to speak up, to push back is very important on creating creative teams. And at the same time, you've mentioned a few stories where the brain trust meetings can get really intense, like where people will even like yell at each other in a meeting. And that to me has an interesting paradox to it where most people when they think of like psychologically safe environments. They don't think of yelling. And yet, at Pixar, The Brain Trust, there was deep passion and safety at the same time. I don't know if you know the story you told me about two people yelling at each other in a meeting and then coming to you afterwards. I don't know if you feel comfortable telling that story. Oh, yeah.
1: It was actually, it was, Brad Bird had just joined us. Uh-huh. We were in some meeting. I even forget which mm-hmm. meet which story meeting it was about. All right. But Brad Bird is just like and a real intense person. And That's Andrew's funny. an intense person. All right. So- and now they going to get red in the face. He's got just very fair skin. So it's easy to get red. Yeah. So, so basically, they're arguing about some story point. Now, I knew in the room, because I know these two people, that they were arguing about the problem. Hmm. It wasn't so, personal. Yeah, it was not personal. Yeah. And so if you knew them, you wouldn't think this was alarming. Hmm. It's just that this is really... Uh, 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 about the story about solving the problems. And then when the meeting ended, I think it was Andrew had to go somewhere. I forget the order of this, but Brad Bird said, I'm so glad I'm here. That was so great. <laughs> <laughs> and then later I ran into the other and and I think it was Andrew the second time that I ran into and he said, it is so refreshing to have Brad here. It's so wonderful to have somebody that cares that much about story. Mm. Okay. Now, there was another meeting where we had an intense thing, and uh, it turns out when they were giving notes to a film down at uh, Disney Animation, this is back when they were not in their strong period, it's, it's totally different today. But yeah. that time, that was the way it was. And we had someone down at Disney observing, and this is when they were giving notes on um, the, uh, uh, Lilo and a Stitch film. Hmm. And so this was this really intense meeting. The filmmakers actually did enjoy it, but the person sent up to observe it, who was in the, the, uh, the side of developing new films, came back afterwards and said, that was a complete disaster. So hmm. That was just the behavior and the yelling was, it's like wrong. Now I'm in that meeting, so. They're actually just being intense about the story. And it's like, okay, that's, I mean, there's something wrong, but it wasn't with the group because the group was keeping the focus on the problem. That's the thing about solving problems. It's like, are we solving the problem? Or are we trying to look good? Hmm. We're trying to impress. And so intensity should not be confused with intention. Hmm. And The thing is because Steve could be so intense that people did confuse it when he was trying to solve the problem. I just read a a book recently. It was actually about Steve and the making of the iPhone and so forth. So it was pretty interesting. The only only information the person really had was talking to people who couldn't talk about it at the time. But the one element that was actually missed in the book is that Steve had people around who were arguing with him. So it's easy to say, well, he had these arguments and he was wrong. But without missing the deeper point, it was like, he did have arguments with people who were still there and he wanted them there and they were right and he was wrong and that was fine
0: with him. Yeah. So, th- and that's okay. Yeah. That's got to be okay. Yeah. And that's how you get the best product. That's how you get the best out of people or the best creativity. Yeah, because you want the intensity. Yeah. Uh, so for for leaders who are listening to this, it seems as though you drifted towards problems that took a long time to solve the first 10 years preparing to make a movie i'm not going to say this quite right but then 10 years making movies and then can we create a culture that tells good stories and then can you replicate that at disney there are these are like 10 year segments of of time versus you know someone's like hey how do we get this out in a month how do we get this out in a year how do we get this out in five years yeah the way the way
1: i thought about it was is that Rather than thinking about a goal, it's like there's a framework for a problem. It's like, you got a big problem you're trying to solve. And so you make a lot of decisions because you also have to solve a large number of smaller problems along the way. Mm -hmm. So I don't, you don't put down the small problems, but the idea is not to get so buried in the short-term problems that you lose the long-term. Yeah. So it's it's like, it's holding on to both short-term and solving the problems along the way for getting the big one done. Yeah. And then once you get the big one done, which is what finally happened when Toy Story came out, then it was the the thought was, okay, what's what is the next thing? And I didn't know what it was. Yeah. It took me a year to actually uh come to grips with what a new really interesting bigger problem was, which at this point shifted away from a technical one of how do you get to where you make a movie? Yeah. It's like this has actually been this great ride. This is a great group of people. But very frequently when you're successful, great groups of people fall apart. Hmm. And so the real question was, okay, how do we have a group that's sustainable, that they continue to do awesome things? Because like anything else, it's all changing. And we're all people, you know, we've got, you know, you have new people coming in, right? you're aging and Having
0: kids, all right. Okay, what does it mean to have a sustainable culture? That's a really interesting problem. Um, so is that part of it? Like, does Pixar and Disney have programs internally that help create safe spaces for artists to emerge and to grow? For me, a, an example would
1: be when we we're making our our films, we've got a new idea. When we we begin to reach the point where okay, this is a film that's got the 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 makings of a real good film you're still early on in the process but say okay we're going to do this this is a good idea so you you start to assemble the leaders for the crew and the the leaders then are then trying to figure out who they want on their film Mm -hmm. so they're coming up with a list for how they staff their film and those leaders have experienced. They know a lot of the people, not everybody, but they know a lot of the people. Yeah. So they will try to select from the other people in the company. It's like cherry picking. They're the best, right? So that's where they—that's their their tendency. Yes. These are all people who understand risk. They love the fact that we take risk. Like this is important to them. They're there
0: because they get to take risk. That's right. Yeah. So that's who they are.
1: And they get along very well with each other, and they're very supportive, so that's great. Now we come to the meeting where the different groups, because films are at different stages, but they're arguing over who do they get on the show. Uh-huh. Okay, so like this is the contention meeting where they get together, work this out, and it's not particularly pleasant process.
0: It's like a like a draft.
1: Yeah, it's like the draft. Yeah. Okay, except that. The weird thing about this draft, unlike let's say sports teams, all right, where they go to a comp- competing team, in this case, everybody's in the company, so the people are staying in the same thing, so they're gonna. Yeah, you're on the same team. You're, you're on the same team. Yeah, which they love. Okay, so, but still, there's this dynamic to say, okay, I really want to have the best people. Yeah. So this went on for several films, like it's kind of drove me crazy because it didn't really make any sense. And at at one time I was with these leaders and I said, we go through this process, film after film, and with every one of these films, you can't always get who you want. So you have to take on somebody where you're asking them to
0: rise to the occasion saying you came in and you actually said, hey, look, guys, stop fighting for, or gals, the people, stop fighting for the top talent only. Well, no, no, I didn't say that. Okay. I was trying to, I was going for understanding. Okay. So you're saying it's, okay. it's a natural thing that you're not going to get who you want.
1: Yeah, I said this. So it happens. You've all gone through this and you all know that with each film, you can't get all the people you want. So you are in a position where you have to ask to somebody to rise to the occasion. For the job. So with that, and that's I'm just stating what they go through. Yeah. I said, so in all these years you've been doing this, what percentage of the people that you've asked to rise to the occasion were not able to do so? And they their answer, which, and they nodded their heads on, yeah. was 5%. Wow. Incident. I did the same thing down at Disney and they said the same thing.
0: So 95% of the people, when you ask them to rise. Do. What if one call could change what you once thought was impossible into a reality? Novus Global is offering you an exploration call with one of their world-class coaches to explore what you, as a leader and your team, are capable of. Novus Global is an elite executive coaching firm that works with multi-billion-dollar companies, professional athletes, nonprofit leaders and faith in faith and government, all to create teams, companies, and communities that go beyond high performance. Book your call right now. Just go to novus.global forward slash now.
1: You know, there's a saying that our most important assets go home at six o'clock. Well, the problem I've got with that is it's calling people assets, hmm. all right? They're people. Yes. They've got their desires, the emotions, their fears, their needs, their aspirations, their family. Yeah. You know, it's like, uh, it's, it, it's not to say, okay, we're valuing that because they're good assets. So you no, know, actually value them because they're good people.
0: Yeah. W- where's the overlap for you between leadership and creativity?
1: Well, I think, first of all, it is a tricky thing because leadership is, is like creativity is, is, is one of those very broad things because one could be a leader, but also be, let's say. Uh, more concerned about how one appears about it and yeah. they're still are in charge. They d- they do make things happen. Yeah. So I can't put down all aspects of that. I do think and hope that the better leaders would be broad enough to feel the personal satisfaction that the people around them are also contributing and doing something. And they feel like they are part of the
0: solution and that they're being creative. So a leader, in that sense, is a person who unleashes the creativity of others? Yeah, Oh, yes. For me, that is the thing you
1: do. It's like, that's your job, is to unleash what they're doing. And, And I don't know if people fully understand this, but of all the things that happened at Pixar, you know, whether it's awards or ceremonies or stuff like that, or the thing that actually gave me the best feeling, like the personal feeling, was we'd go to a meeting to work on a hard problem mm-hmm. and then there, are with uh, uh, a lot of the leaders and producers and so forth working on these problems. And in those discussions, I'm just somebody else. And if they didn't agree with what I said, which yeah. they frequently didn't, then they felt comfortable in saying so. And they were actually frequently right because they're, they're the ones that are actually seeing things more yeah, directly. And so mean- I can sort of, say something and they say no nah, that isn't that isn't getting it okay <laughs> Much, yeah so we wouldn't necessarily even solve the problem but the sense was that they owned the problem they weren't thinking as if i or like a, a picture of jim morris who's yep. also in these rooms yeah like what what are we going to do about it? how are we going to solve it it's like it's their problem and I just feel like, that's awesome. <laughs> that, that means they also own the studio mm. and they own the culture. So that allowed, besides that great feeling, was like, okay, it's it's more interesting to spend the time, think through things, talk with people and, and have random discussions with people. Yeah. You just get different perspectives when you actually intentionally do random things, like random select where you're going to talk, where you're going to walk and... On a fairly frequent basis, arrange for a random lunch. Hmm. So, with a random lunch, yeah, as that work? Well, my my assistant Wendy would just randomly select people, and she'd send out an email saying who would like to have lunch. Okay, it's so like a lottery. So, and she'd say, and so she just picked eight people from that. So, it was just like never more than eight people. Yep, that's about the number you can have a lunch. Yeah, and could be anybody any position in the company from the kitchen staff, various artists frequently are people I didn't know at all. Yeah. Really no agenda. Yeah. So we chat for a while. I would frequently tell them things that I was probably a little more than I should have told them. I mean, it's, this is really hard to describe because there are things that are discreet with any organization. Right. But there are other stuff when a lot of organizations, like on the err on the side of caution. I didn't err on the side of caution. Okay. So the message they got was that I trusted them because they
0: did. That's incredible, I imagine. So there, were there any insights or anything that came from those? I know, I know that's not why you were doing it, but what came from those meetings aside from the not insignificant trust that's built in the relationship and the rapport that's built? First of all, you're getting to
1: know people
0: and you try to make it, So that
1: the conversation is an easy one. So I used to start off with something and for, for a while I'd open up this, this lunch for a few minutes talking about, this is like breaking the ice, your ability to visualize when you close your eyes, Mm -hmm. because I discovered actually late in my tenure there at picture on Disney that I don't actually see things when I close my eyes.
0: Yeah. So let's slow down. So most people can can imagine things in their mind, a red box or whatever a fantasia. A fantasia. And that's what you have.
1: Yes. So, essentially it's like a skewed belker. Most people are pretty good at visualizing, okay. Some people are extraordinarily good, and some people can't do it at all. Hmm. So the question is, what is what's the impact on your professional job because we're in a visual industry? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and so I but was, you, but you didn't even know that that's, that was a thing. Didn't, I didn't know it was a thing. Yeah. I discovered by accident. Okay. And, uh, and then I was surprised by it. And then the big surprise came when I had dinner with Glenn Keane, who's one of the best hand drawn animators of all Ever. time. yeah. Because I would have assumed that all these great animators have got these extraordinary yeah. visual abilities. Of course, yeah. He has a Fantasia, just like I do. So then how do you guys do what you do? Well, is that, okay, that was the weird thing. Yeah. Because I came up with the, the way of generating surfaces or modeling surfaces that's used by the entire industry. Now. Mm-hmm. It's, the, it's the main, the primary system. But I didn't do it by seeing pictures and I didn't do it by doing mathematics. So there was something else in my head and I remember the, going through the process, but I don't know what went inside. Now, in Glenn's case, who was extraordinarily good He actually builds up some sort of emotional basis for something and a character. And when he first puts it up, it's a scribble. It's only by drawing that he can see. But he quickly converges on this beautiful piece of art. Hmm. So, okay, that's pretty different. I remember in particular, one of the lunches, there were seven people who were very good at visualizing. Mm Mm-hmm. And they weren't artists. The only artist in the group couldn't visualize. Couldn't visualize. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. So this led to this whole series of things, uh, which ultimately led to the conclusion by doing a study, because now we've got between the two studios, a lot of people.
0: Yeah. In the visual medium.
1: Yeah. And to do a correlation between what's your ability to visualize and what your job is. And the real answer is there isn't much correlation. Huh is not highly relevant to what you're able to do as an artist or as a technical person
0: all right so one of my favorite stories that you've told me before is around there's two pieces of this but the first part is how directors create stories within pixar so i remember you and i was surprised you said we don't we give people about a year to come up with a, a pitch and you said but we don't ask them to pitch one story I would love for you to take it from there. What do you do instead of asking them to pitch one story?
1: Well, one of the things that I think makes Pixar unique to begin with is that we realized fairly early on that we didn't wanna follow the standard model the studios have, which is that you look for a lot of ideas to make, and once you settle on the idea, you hire somebody to writer, you hire somebody to your and you begin to assemble it around that. Roughly that, a schedule. So it's like playing the odds. Okay, and there's a reason for it, right? It works in some areas. Yeah, sure. Um, But in our case, what we wanted to do is say, okay, who can direct and lead in, who can tell a good story and draw out the emotion that it it takes to get something across? And uh, because we had some really great people in there, then we would see them and Uh, And we're also taking a risk because we don't know if they can do it because basically, even if you're elbow to elbow with somebody who's done some great stuff, it isn't the same thing as having the position itself. Yeah. And you won't know until you do it. So when they do it, though, then they need to have the story to tell. But we didn't pick them because they were saying, here, pick me because I've got a story. It's more like like they do want to direct. They want to lead. But they have to be given the chance. So we know that if you then try to come up with a story and tell a story, that you can get stuck. Hmm. It's like a lot of things in life, right? You're trying to solve a problem, you get stuck. You start to bang your head against the wall. It's very frustrating. And then for some people, it's like, oh, you take a break, and all of a sudden, things start to happen again. In this case, what we decided to do was we asked each person to come up with three different ideas. Three different ideas instead of one. Yes. Their choice. And then we gave them you know, basically a year to do that. And the development department was providing some resources and the development department at Pixar, they viewed their job as supporting those people with what they needed hmm. to help
0: in that process. So like facilitators of them Developing their three pitches. Yeah, so like
1: they would look for good writers. So we actually did read outside material, but only for the purpose of finding a writer who was good that had the kind of sensibility that would match up with something. So they're, they're like a, for a matchmaking fun—kind of thing. Yeah, and uh, we found some great writers there in, the, in that process. Anyway, initially, like it's it's an idea. They'd have maybe a storyboard artist and some people looking for images on the internet trying to convey it. And they'd talk with their friends and so forth. But they're pretty much, you know, you know, one or two people trying to do this with this director.
0: Mm.
1: And then they would come up with their three ideas and their pitches would have the basic outline of what a story might be and with some conceptual artwork to convey the notion of Mm. it. Like the vibe. Yeah. So with everybody's expectation, we all know that you know, when you actually get into it, it's going to change dramatically, but what's a starting point that everybody can believe in? Hmm. So a phenomenon that happened with this every time was that we reached the point when they're ready to pitch it and they're going to pitch it to the creative leaders of the company. So it's like, maybe only like four or five people who are their colleagues, but these are their experienced leaders about what's going to work. And... Or are we going to put you know a lot, a lot of resources, yeah, and years of work, yeah, behind this person, yeah, because you have to believe in that person, yeah. So we go into a room, and it's done in different ways, but a, a common way is that there'd be a wall of a storyboard room. The storyboard room is like a like a small conference room where it's got some length along it, and you've got a table in the middle, and it can hold maybe fifteen people in okay. it. Because they're two long walls, you can put storyboards along it, and you put images and pictures on it, and then usually it's covered over because you don't want the other wall to distract it. Right. And then they're only two long walls, so you may end up going into the other room to get a third pitch. So they start off by saying, I love all of these ideas equally. So it doesn't matter to me which one you pick. Nice. They all say it. They've all seen this before. Yes. And they're all lying.
0: This <laughs> is right. <laughs>
1: they, I, I was one of those weird things like, why did they say this? <laughs> because
0: they've heard everybody,
1: other L-say. people say this. Yeah.
0: It's the ritual. It's a part of the ritual. It's
1: part of the ritual. So I don't care which one you pick. Yeah. So then they pitch the idea. There's like maybe a half hour spent to discussing it and talking about it and so forth. And then after we have some discussion, trying to get things understood and explained, then we switch to the other wall and go through the same thing again yeah. and then at, go through the third pitch. And at the end of that, they would go out and there'd be a discussion with, with everybody. And it was like the merits of the ideas and so forth, but basically the primary responsibility was of that group. And that's the way they looked at it was. Which one does that person really want to make?
0: Yeah. So, which is, I want to pause there because if you're not looking for the best idea; you're looking for the idea that the director is most passionate about. Yes, they're all going to change.
1: No. Yeah. So it's that emotional core and passion hmm. that we're looking for. Yeah. And so you told me a great example of that. So my favorite example yeah. was with Leonid on Coco. So this is when he's pitching it. So we go into this room, he pitched one idea.
0: Not Coco, a totally different movie idea. Totally different movie
1: idea. So one of the ideas was, it was related to a a pitch he'd made earlier. Another one was a musical that he had. They're, They're both a good idea. Yeah. Okay. And then at the end of those two pitches, we had to go to the other room. So we all get up, we walk in the other room, we open the door the table, both walls, the ceilings and the back wall are filled with Mexican artwork. (laughs) So without a word being spoken, I know which movie we're making. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, and it was the one he wanted to do, I mean, you could tell. Yeah. So that was probably a more extreme example With, with some of them. It's like, okay, it's, it's not as clear that they're doing, but we just made this film recently. It was after I retired, but it came out, which is uh, Becoming Red. Yeah. So this is Domi Shi. She'd made one of the most brilliant shorts we had yeah. ever made, Val, yeah. which is stunning. Yes. And so she had some some ideas for things, but there was one if like you look at it and say, okay, well, that's really one where she's got the emotion. And she mm-hmm. did the same thing if I don't care which one you pick. Mm-hmm. But when we said, okay, that's the one. And she said, oh, I was hoping that's the one you'd pick. Yeah so and it changed dramatically fifth yeah. like all of them just like the final film was like you know significantly different but but it doesn't matter because you're protecting the passion
0: right which, which by the way it's interesting to me how in other other studios you hire a writer you hire a director sometimes the director's not even passionate about the project but they've got to work and so then you try to make it happen and it, it there isn't a really a preservation or deep protection of the emotional core of a story you know like the the, the writer who wrote seven it, it, it got turned into like a buddy comedy almost by the time it had been passed around. And then David Fincher says, hey, I'm only going to do that movie if it's protecting the core of what the original writer intended, which was, of course, the head-in-the-box element. And what I love about Pixar is he designed a system that protects the core, the, the passion, the emotion of the project, knowing that the uh, exterior is going to change, but the interior won't. And I think that's so impressive and worth emulating in other industries. It's the goal.
1: I wouldn't say we've always got it right, each one at 100%. Right. But I mean, they're, they're part of the learning. It's like, okay, what can we do better right. next time?
0: Well, and speaking of doing better next time, your book, Creativity, Inc., is going through a facelift. I remember uh, seeing you talk about it in downtown Los Angeles when it first came out, bought it immediately, bought multiple copies, sent it to my friends, and now you've got a new version coming out.
1: It's actually in June. June. Okay. Is, is when it's coming roughly June, I think so.
0: Yeah. So it'll be coming out. So it'll be coming out soon. Yeah. Why the facelift?
1: Well, it, it, I mean, it's not so much a facelift is that the main text is the same thing. I'm just adding some things to it. Hmm. It's like, you know, to talk a little more about the brain trust and the thought behind it, it would be an example of that. Yeah. But also after a notes day, what got set in motion by that day? Cause it's a day of feedback. So we have a day of feedback, and then what did is it started a fair amount of time of reevaluating things and evaluation, and which is what should happen in any company. Hmm. And it's kind of a singular event, it's like when you have something which is singular, you can't even repeat it. Like, we shouldn't try to do notes day again, but it was our way of trying to get at things, and yeah. then in doing so, responding, and then it spun out other things from that. So it was actually a long process as the company grew and you know, you're bringing new people. How do you adapt to the realities? Uh, and, and, and part of it also is we are because this whole group, you know, they've got their families and so forth. So we've got new people coming in and it isn't as how do they learn from the people who did it? It's like, how do we let them? do what we did which was to create new solutions to problems that we may not even see yeah rather than trying to emulate the way that the group four worked and essentially you have to put yourself in a, in a place where you are trusting new people how do you do that
0: yeah you know it's a uh, that was a, a long process it's a long process so i'm excited for the revisions i'm excited for the new nuggets and just to honor you a little bit one of the things I've always appreciated about you, so I know that, I know that the new version of the book is also going to feature some voices that were not as featured as prominently in the first version that, upon reflection, played a huge part, not only in Pixar's past, but also in the present. And I love how much you love teams. I love how much you love culture. And I suggest everybody go and pick up the book if you haven't read it before. Get the new version as well, even if you have the old version. I'm excited to kind of see the differences. I'll, I'll tell you this. Your leadership and your influence has had a profound impact on me and uh, the companies that I get to be a part of these days. And I just wanna say thank you. And on behalf of our audience, thanks for taking some time with us to share the uh, just an ounce of the insights that you have. I wish we had more time, but I appreciate the time you've given us today. Thanks a lot, Ed. Well, thank
1: you. I, I appreciate it. And the whole reason, is like, okay, can I do something which helps? Yeah,
0: So it's... it has. Good, thank you. Thank you. I love that conversation with Ed and I hope you enjoyed it too. Make sure to pick up the new expanded version of Ed's book, Creativity Inc., wherever books are sold. All right, we have a few more things to let you know about before you go. First, podcast reviews really help us serve more people. So if this podcast is helpful for you, we'd love your help to get it into as many leaders' hands as possible. Please leave us a review, even if it's not five stars. And if you really want to go the extra mile, let us know what you'd like to hear about more of or what you think we could do better to serve you and the people that you care about. Speaking of resources, we have a lot online and they're all free. We have free assessments, educational videos, articles from sources like Fast Company, written by our coaches and clients, all designed to help you use our tools in your everyday life and leadership. To dive into the free treasure trove of goodies we have for you, go to novus.global and then click on resources. Some of you have been listening for a while and you haven't yet taken that next step to hire a coach. This is your time. I can't tell you how often I've heard from clients of ours around the world that they wish they would have talked to us sooner. So if you have a sense that you're capable of more, we would be thrilled to explore or what coaching could do for you and those you influence. Simply email us at begin at novus.global or click the link in the show notes. You might also be listening to this thinking you want to be a coach or maybe you already are a coach and you have a vision to build a six or seven figure coaching practice coaching people you love in a way that brings life to you and your clients. Well, that's why we created the Meta Performance Institute for Coaching. It is an in-depth coaching apprenticeship designed to help you create the coaching practice of your dreams. The first step in exploring that is simple. Just go to www.mp.institute. That's MP, as in meta-performance, institute. and we have free assessments to help you see what kind of training you need to create your coaching practice the way our coaches do at Novus Global. And finally, we want to give a special thank you to the crew for this episode. Casey Skinner was our story and video editor. Rob Gilligan was our sound editor and mixer. And thank you to our videographers, Chi Win and Ian Albert, and to the Rainbow Creative Production team, producers Matthew Jones and Steven Selnick and audio editor Jeremy Davidson. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, dare to go beyond high performance.